0: Right, well, my name's Chris, Chris Spicer, and uh, I'm married to a wonderful lady called Tina. Yeah, she said you'd cheer at that point, so I tell her you didn't say anything. (laughs) I have four children, and I have seven rock star grandchildren. And every one of them is different, and every every one of them I thank God for. Our youngest son is named Jonathan. And a number of years ago, when he was only about 18 months and I was working in my home office, Jonathan made his way into the office while I was trying to work. And being as Jonathan is, he is like his mother, very gregarious, loves people. And in fact, we went to a, a, a parent evening at school and the teacher said, "Well, of course, Mr. Spicer, your son comes here for the social life, not the education, <laughs> which was very true. Jonathan, our youngest, just loves people he 's like his mother he 's not like me. Um, so he came into the office office, my office, and he, he kind of somehow wangled his way up onto my lap and he 's looking at the photographs on the wall and on my desk and, there's this particular photograph, if we could show this photograph, that he's intrigued by. Now, this is an old photograph. That's some moustache. Um, but this is our four children, or this is our three children. And Jonathan's looking at this photograph, and he doesn't quite talk yet. And so he's trying to say something to me, and I, being a little bit thick, I'm trying to work out, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to communicate? Jonathan, what is it? He keeps pointing... And what he's trying to say is, I, I see mum, I see dad, I see Esther, I see Hannah, I see my brother uh, Luther, who had to have a teddy because he hated having his photograph taken. That was the only way we could bribe him, um, good parenting, bribe him to sit still and try and smile. But he wanted to know, where am I? I'm not in the picture. Where am I? I'm not in the picture. Now, I'm not about to explain the facts of life to an 18-year-old or an 18-month-old. And I do my best to explain why he's not in the picture. Now, I'm going to read a few verses from the New Testament, and I'm going to read about a story. And my whole goal this morning is to put yourself in the picture. To see this not just as some sort of ancient story, but actually put yourself into the picture of the story I'm going to read. So if you have a Bible, or you have a phone app, if not, it's going to come up on the screen. I'm going to read from the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 16. And just while you're finding that, let me explain what's going on in this, this text. This is about two main characters. This story is about two main people. One person is called Paul and his friend Silas. And these two gentlemen are on a mission trip. They're traveling through what we now know as Greece. And they're spreading the good news of Jesus. But this is not a good day at the office. Because they see this girl who has life controlling issues. And they believe that the power of God can set this young lady free. And so they pray for her, and she is miraculously set free from life-controlling issues. But the people who were profiting from her were not well pleased. And so they stood up the crowd, got them arrested, got Paul and Silas arrested, and then they were taken to the magistrates and beaten, and then thrown into jail. So this is where we join it. Acts 16 verse 22, and it reads: The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and ordered and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, and fastened their feet in stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Simon's already mentioned this text. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, And everyone's chains, bonds were unfastened. Now, forgive me. I love the English language. I'm not too good at it. I didn't do too well at school, but I love the English language. I'm a kind of frustrated wordsmith. I love playing around with English words. I love alliteration. I love words that kind of help to give you a hook on which to hang things and this morning my talk is about stocks and shares stocks and shares not the financial sort but the ancient stocks into which paul and silas were placed and the sharing of these two gentlemen where they prayed and praised god together So it's all about stocks. Verse 24 of the text I've just read, it said, Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, I don't know everyone in this room, but I'm sure there's very few of us that have ever experienced prison. And even saying that, none of us have ever, ever experienced the inhumane way in which prisoners in the ancient world were treated. There's not enough words in the English language to describe the horrific place that Paul and Silas found themselves in. It's enough to say that where they were was extremely dark and indescribably dirty. There was no television. There was no clean sheets. There was no windows. It was a dark and dirty place. But although we've never been in such an experience, all of us at times in our life feel that there is a confinement. We might feel that we are in our own particular prison. You know the place where it's—you could say—well, it's it's extremely dark and dismal where I am. I, through no fault of my own, I feel as if I'm in this emotional, this spiritual, this physical dark and dreary place. It's not a literal prison. It says of Paul and Silas, they were put into the inner prison. And sometimes we can experience things in life through no fault of our own when we're locked up in our own inner prison. Things happen to us and we get locked up emotionally. We get locked up spiritually and sometimes we're locked up physically. We've been wrongly treated and we feel hurt, beaten up and badly bruised by people, objects and events. And we're in our own inner prison. Things happen that causes us to be in a place like Paul and Silas. And so when I paint this picture, you can put yourself in the picture. You say, I'm not in a literal prison, but there is a kind of inner prison. And they weren't only in an inner prison locked up. They were put into stocks. They were going nowhere. This whole story is about life controlling issues. They had seen a young lady released miraculously from a life-controlling issue. Now they, through no fault of their own, were locked up. They were in a life-controlling situation and they were going nowhere. It's, look, we're not about apportioning blame who's at fault. We're not criticizing any wrong choices. We're not defining justice or injustice. We're just seeing these people who are going nowhere. They're locked up and they need to find freedom. And in being in the stocks, in the, the inner prison, feeling this this kind of confinement, they need to think outside their circumstances. In the Vietnam War, in the Vietnam War, there was a man called Major James Nesmith. He was a combat pilot. And in his spare time, he loved to play golf. He wasn't too brilliant at it. His average round was around 90 in the 90s. But while he was flying over North Vietnam, he was shot down and became a prisoner of the North Vietnamese. And while he was in prison for seven years, he was treated in a horrible way. Most of his time was in solitary confinement. He was tortured for long stretches of of time. But this major... Though he was in a literal prison, enabled himself to think outside the prison. Every day of his imprisonment, he played golf in his mind. He remembered his favorite golf course and in his mind he would tee off on the first tee and he would go around the whole 18 holes every day of his life and he imagines the greens. He imagines the obstacle, how he needs to curve the ball on this one and how he needs to pitch over that to get in and miss the bunkers here and there. For seven years he did that every day of his life. When he was released, he started playing not in the 90s but in the 70s. I don't know how true it is, but someone said on his first literal game, he scored a hole in one. Incredible. Why? Because he'd made, he'd come to this place where he was thinking outside his imposed confinement. It says, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God. At midnight, this is the point when p.m. gives way to a.m. This is the start of a whole new day. It's midnight. It's that time in which things are changed. And these guys began to sing. It's thought that we can't prove it, that they sang the Psalms. It's thought that they may have sang from the Psalms that are known as the Hallel, the Hallelujah Psalms. If they did, they may have sang words like this, from the rising of the sun to its setting. This is from Psalms 133. The name of the Lord is to be praised. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Psalm 116. The snares of death encompass me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. I'm here this morning because I believe in my heart that what God wants to say to us is it's time to take stock of the stocks. It's time to acknowledge that maybe there are certain positions we find ourselves in and we feel just like Paul and Silas, that there is a kind of a limitation on our life. We're not living as maybe we would like to live. And therefore we need to think outside of our situation and acknowledge that there is a sovereign God, that there is someone who is far bigger than us far bigger than our greatest problem. Someone who can bring liberty, who can get to the root of the issue and can begin to bring, as it were, here, an earthquake, a shaking of those controlling issues. So the stocks. Let me come to this issue of shares. I love this. I love this story. They say a problem shared is a problem halved. And I kind of interject myself into the scene where Paul and Silas are singing. Now, we're not told, we don't know, I'm surmising. But I'm fascinated. I'd like to know who kickstarted the first song. (laughs) I'd like to know whose idea it was to sing. I'll be honest, it wouldn't be mine. I am, naturally speaking, more pessimistic. I see the hole and miss the donut. <laughs> I tend to see the negatives more than the positives. If it was, you see, if it was Paul, Silas' name means uh, uh, lover of words. So maybe it was Silas that kick-started the songs and nudged Paul and said, come on, let's sing. Or maybe as you read the text, it's kind of Paul who is the instigator of most of the conversations. Maybe it's Paul who instigates the praise and the prayer. I'll be honest with you. If someone had nudged me, I've just been beaten, I'm bruised, I'm battered, I'm sore, I may be bleeding. And you were with me in prison say, come on, let's sing. You wouldn't get a positive response from me. I'm I'm just being honest. I'm just saying, I've been beaten. I've been bruised. I, I feel depressed and I, I deserve this depression. So please leave me alone. You want a praise party? I want a pity party. Go ahead. Feel free. But it doesn't seem to be that way. It was a duet, not a solo. We all need Paul and Silas in our lives. We all need friends, friends who are, well, I put stockholders there. That should read shareholders, shareholders, people who believe in us, who believe in our call, our vision, who share our passion and share our dreams, friends who will come alongside us and encourage us. Paul and Silas, they they, they remind me of a shareholder. If you didn't listen or you weren't here last week, Rob uh, gave a great word on the early disciples and how they went out fishing on the command of Jesus. And they were catching so much they couldn't cope with what was contained in their nets. So they called to their partners. Those are partners in business to come over and help us cope with this huge catch. They are called shareholders. I, I texted a friend of mine called Mark this morning The time I was going to mention his name. He didn't get back to me, so I'm still going to mention his name. <laughs> Mark is for me my shareholder. Been a friend for a number of years. He believes in me. He is someone who knows what the call of God is on my life. And I can spend time with him and he understands me. He understands, he's concerned. He is a shareholder. He is my Silas to my Paul. He is my Paul to my Silas. We all need shareholders. We not only need shareholders, we need what I call alongsiders. Alongsiders. When we were first married, now, this is a history lesson. This is with my illustrations. We had a car called a Ford Angular. A deluxe, I'll have to put the word, a deluxe Ford Angular. When we left on our honeymoon, our youth group put candles on the, on, over the headlights, stuck candles on there that somehow managed to stay on there till we got back. A dear old lady in in the church we were at said, Oh, sorry about your car. I said, Yeah, the lights have failed and so we've had to do something about it. (laughs) (laughs) She believed me. I don't know why. Oh, yeah, I know. (laughs) You have to remind yourself where you are. Um, this car would often fail to start. It just had a winter's morning when you'd scrape the window screens, you turn the key. You don't have to be a mechanic. You know the battery is dead. Why I'm pausing here, in America, if you say the battery's flat, they say soda's flat, batteries are dead. So it's a battery that's dead. And what would happen is I'd call on a friend, and they would come, and they would bring these. You gentlemen who have no idea what these are—you think they're paper clips, but they're not paper clips, right? These are these are jump leads. Now they don't jump, but you know anyway. I'm just educating you here. Your friend comes along, and they generally come in a nice shiny car that's just. <laughs> rumbling with a two-liter V8 or whatever it is. Sorry, I'm getting carried away here. Uh, And they make a connection. They connect these to their battery, which is just great. And you're trying not to be envious. God bless them. They've got a nice car. Um, So they plug them into their battery, and then they take the others, make sure they're getting the plus and the minus correct, and then they put them onto yours. And then you turn the key, and the car goes. It's amazing. It's when you stall that they come and help you. In the medical world, now I am going outside of my frame of reference here. You know when you I watch medical programs and you watch that monitor, heart monitor, and suddenly goes a straight line. And you know the person in this program has just died. And so they get these paddles, you know, and they put boom. And they put electric current and the person comes back to life. You know what that? In the Bible, that's called laying on of hands. <laughs> what it is, someone has come alongside, made a connection, and whereas we've stalled, maybe we've stopped in our journey, they help to get us going. I need alongsiders in my life. Rob Davy is a alongsider for me. I can go into his office and he can make a connection in a moment of time that has been a transmission of, of God anointing that is, whoa, that's great. And you go in like that and you come out like this. It's just amazing. We need people. God himself is an alongsider. Jesus was an alongsider. The Holy Spirit, his name is Paracletos. We need Paracletos people who will come alongside us and do us good. I am not up for people coming alongside and doing me not good. You know, I have the gift of discouragement. Can I help you? No, you can't. Sorry. I need some encouragement. You need people. I need people. You need people that will come alongside. It's called the Alongsider. Now, forgive me, this is an advert. If you want to know more of what it means to be an Alongsider, there is a free e-booklet on coffeechats.org. That I've written about this whole process of what it means to be an alongsider. So, if you want to know more about that, go to that. Paul wasn't a alongsider to Silas, and Silas wasn't a alongsider to him. And then, thirdly, let's get choristers. <laughs> I need people who will come and sing with me. Now, sometimes I sing in a minor key, but I need people who will come. Not necessarily come with answers. Let's face it, sometimes I don't need Christians to try and work up an answer. I'm being honest with you. Sometimes I just think, shut up. <laughs> Please, just give me a break. I'm sorry. <laughs> sometimes we don't need answers. We just need friends who will come and sit with us and say, I've got no answers. but I'm just here. I'm just here. I want to empathize with how you are feeling. I don't fully understand. You know, the word empathy has the idea of walking in another man's moccasins. It's trying to get inside their skin, not under it, inside it. And we need friends like that. Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. Woe to him who is alone when he falls. What's going on in Act 16 is a duet, not a solo. What I'm saying is we all need these kind of friends. Friends who have the boldness to come knocking at our door at midnight. I do have some friends who would have no shame going knocking on their door at midnight and say, I've got a need. And that whole thing is about prayer. It's not about the audacity. It's kind of, no, sorry, it's not about pestering God in such a way that if you keep going, He will answer. It's more about boldness. A friend comes and knocks the door at midnight. It's the friends who carry their sick friend on a a, a rug or a mat to Jesus and break up the roof. You read of it in, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, how they break up the roof in Mark 2 and they lower their friend down. I need friends who will get me to Jesus. I will do whatever it takes. I need to get you to God because God's the answer. Friends who care, friends who carry. And here these two guys are singing hymns. Now they're not singing Wesley's and they're not singing Watts. Those were hymn writers. They are singing the Psalms. But when we talk about hymns, hymns are sung this way. When you sing a hymn, you are declaring to others what our God has done and can do. It's a verbal declaration. Often when I've worked with evangelists, they will say, we need a hymn. Before I share, I want a hymn. Why? Because it's a declaration on this level. Praise is a vertical um, means of praising God. But hymns come on this level. They are singing hymns to God in a uh, kind of very difficult circumstance. It's like Job, who in his desperation says, yet though he slay me, still will I trust him. He's singing. It's like Jonah, and I'm paraphrasing. He's in the belly of a large fish. And he's saying, though the seaweed is around my head, it will be a crown and I will praise God. Sometimes in the dire situation, what we need to do is to declare, the goodness of God. So maybe you're someone this morning Say, hey, I can put myself in this picture. Like Jonathan, where do I come in the picture? You've been treated unjustly. Maybe you feel emotionally, physically, spiritually beaten up and badly bruised. Maybe you're in a dark and dreary place. And this morning you need a breakthrough. I believe that breakthrough can come for us this morning. Because we're in a few moments, we're going to sing. And my prayer is this morning, as we sing, we will see the breakthrough. Maybe you need an alongsider. That's one thing great about this church. It's full of alongsiders. You only have to say, will someone pray with me? There'll be someone there. Why? Because they want to stand with you. There are plenty with the skill of jump leads in this house, in this church, in this family. And maybe you want someone to stand with you and pray with you. And at the end, I would encourage you to find someone to do that. You say, oh, Chris, you don't understand my situation. And I have to say, I don't. Life is like, in some ways, it's a game. that all goes back in the box in the end. And you may feel this morning, I'm in a, a kind of a checkmate situation. I want to end with this picture. Can we put this picture up? You may know this picture. It's called Checkmate. It used to hang in the uh, the Louvre in, in France. It was sold in 1999. And I won't even try and pronounce the artist. I'll get it wrong. His middle name was Augustus. Or August. The picture shows it's... Trying to depict the devil who is very happy because he's won. And the young man is looking very forlorn because he's lost the game. And he knows that he's lost his life to the powers that are satanic. And it's called Checkmate. There's a story that goes with this. Where someone took a famous chess player through the Louvre. And in knowing he'd be interested, he pointed out this picture. So it's called checkmate. And then the person who was bringing the famous chess player with him moved on. And the famous chess player stopped. He kept looking. There's something wrong. He said, come on, come on. The game's over. It's checkmate. And suddenly he said, no, it's not checkmate. There's one move left. And he said, the king still has a move. It doesn't matter where we're at this morning, the king of kings has the last move. And whatever your life is at this morning, maybe you feel somewhat there are issues that are kind of locking you up or, or stopping you move forward in your life, And whether that's emotional, physical or spiritual. I want to say the king has the last move. We here worship a God who's sovereign. And we believe that he is well able to shake, no, no matter what the situ- situation, is, able to shake the very foundations. That's the God we serve. The king has the last move. The king has the last move.